And we are joined, Mark, uh, without John Wilkin, which is good news today, by uh, Mr John Dutton, who is Chief Executive at Rugby League World Cup 2021, which we're going to get fully stuck into. Uh, John's managed to put a smile back on his face over the last few weeks, but it's been a tough few weeks, a tough year, I can imagine, John. I, I want to, before we talk about that, um, go right back to really to talk about you, because we don't know too much about you. I, I, I'm told that you definitely wanted to play Rugby League at one stage. I want to know who's your team? What your sort of young life watching rugby league was like? Uh, thank you, uh, Will. My team is Lee. Um, so on Sunday, I had the pleasure of watching their first victory in 17 months. Um, yeah, growing up, I uh, wanted to be an athlete, a rugby league player. Um, I think about the age of maybe 16, 17, realised I was neither good enough nor brave enough. So uh, career in sports administration, I am in envy of Mark and John and people that put the bodies on the line and play the game. I wish I was, uh, I wish I was better and a bit braver. Were you a lead Miners or a Lee East player? Oh, that's slightly controversial, uh, Mark. I actually played rugby union um, growing up in Lee. And then when I went to university in Newcastle, um, Mick Hogan, um, infamous in the northeast, I helped set up uh, Gateshead Panthers at the time uh, and actually played a combination of rugby league and rugby union um, in Newcastle. Um, ran the university team, actually had a pretty decent team. Um, and yeah, then then work. I My first job was working on the European golf tour. Uh, so I was in a different location each week and that put a stop to any form of uh, rugby league. Well, you've got something in common already, Mark, haven't you? Because uh, John Mark played rugby union at the weekend. He, he just he, he just can't let it go. You know those sort of sportsmen and women that you just think, just give it, just give it up, give it up. But he just can't let it go. And he went down to turn out for, for Wilmslow. He's obviously on the bench like, like he started a lot of his Super League career, but came on and um, did he break your ribs, Mark? Or, but it's over, isn't it? It's no. a one, one game wonder. One game wonder, yeah. I felt quite comfortable on the bench. It was more familiar than actually on the pitch um, for me at the weekend. But yeah, it lasted about 30 minutes and then a few of the recurring rugby league injuries put, put an end to that. So I'm, I'm back to being a, a sports fan. <laughs> Look, John, you, you have had an, an unbelievable um, career and I know it's still going and, and who knows where it could go in the next 10, 15 years. But, you know, you mentioned working on uh, the European Golf Tour. Um, you've worked, of course, for... Manchester FA, you were chief exec there for years. Um, you know, worked on Champions League finals, Tour de France's. Um, you've worked with Tiger Woods as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, in 1997, um, it was the first Ryder Cup that Tiger Woods played in, in Valderrama in Spain. Um, so I was fortunate to, to be there. Um, I don't actually like golf. I've never played golf, but I've been to some of the best golf courses in the world and been with some of the best golfers in the world. Uh, right at the start of my career, Seve Ballesteros um, was on the uh, tour, who was just an incredible um, human being. Um, so, yeah, I've been very, very lucky. Um, I worked on the Tour de France, uh, Will, and had the most bonkers job title. I was the director of readiness for the Tour de France. And <laughs> in um, Yorkshire oh, I think behind the scenes were, were we ever ready perhaps not but was the event um, magnificent it, uh, it absolutely was yeah I mean look you've, you've had some interesting named roles you know director of readiness um, what was your what was your role at the RFL director of people and persons or d d d director of projects and then people um, was added on and it's effectively that was it was a great role. It was everything that wasn't business as usual. So literally anything, uh, international rugby league, um, big transformation change, IT, literally anything that didn't fall into the business of running uh, the sport of rugby league. So uh, yeah, I, I've, I've had a privilege, 27 years of my 
professional career working entirely in sport, uh, meeting some great people and um, visiting some great places. Yeah. Look, let's get stuck into it, Mark, with John, because I know, you know, people listening will, you know, want answers and just want to hear what's happened to John over the last few weeks, uh, where, where it's definitely intensified. Look, this role, John, as we introduced you at the top, you know, Chief Executive at Rugby League World Cup 2021. And I know you've worked on a couple of World Cups in, in 13 and 17, doing, you know, various different roles. Um so you got this job in in 2018. So much effort, so much work went into it. I think I watched you do a speech at Manchester Hall a few years ago, and you know it was so much excitement um, about what was about to happen. Um, firstly, before we talk about what has happened in the last few weeks, what was that role like for you, and how much effort did go into it? I think the first thing to say is go all the way back to being a five-year-old with my dad taking me to my first rugby league game at Hilton Park in Lee. And um, I have the privilege of being able to work in the sport that I truly love. Um, the role with the World Cup, this World Cup actually started way back in 2015 um, when we had the idea to stay something bigger and better than ever before. I think many of us will, uh, I'm sure Mark, um, will remember 2013. Um, and 2013 was a game changer for International Rugby League, a World Cup that we delivered on a shoestring budget. 74,000 people came to watch that final at Old Trafford between Australia and New Zealand. Of course, we remember the semi-final and what happened um, at Wembley. So way back in 2015, we had the opportunity to do something different. Um, it needed government funding. It needed um, a plan and it needed some ambition. Uh, and I think what we've actually got to this point is we've delivered against all of those things. We've got an enormous amount of government support. Most importantly, we've been able to deliver a social impact programme that has genuinely made a difference on people's lives, whether it's new facilities, whether it's mental fitness, uh, education. Um, so we've always been really proud of delivering this in a different way um, and hopefully leaving something behind for the sport um, in years to come. Obviously, that was up until a point where we've had to take a bit of a deep breath and uh, reset and go again. Uh, John, I was I was reading an interview by you um, a few a good few months ago, and you were discussing some of the values that you and your team have have have, have had since you started in fifteen, and they were world class, authentic, inclusive, bold, and brave. Could you expand on on those those words and what they mean to you and to the tournament? Yeah, I, I mean, being values led, and you, you've been part of a team, and you have team values. It's really hard when you're under pressure to maintain those values. The easiest thing is to put them to one side because they don't quite fit. And I can hand on heart say over the last few months, we have truly lived and breathed our values. I think the bold and brave first, the decision to stage all three tournaments together, 61 games, 21 venues, 21 countries, some amazing nations, Brazil, Jamaica, Greece, um, I think a transformative moment for International Rugby League. And we've been, we've all the way through been trying to push that boundary and be bold and brave. I think inclusive speaks for itself, men, women and wheelchair athletes on the same platform. And the really hard thing about that, Mark, was when we made that decision in 2015, it was the right decision. Subsequently, when we looked at, gosh, equal pay, um, levelling up, making sure everyone's experience is exactly the same, everyone's on the same platform, that's been quite hard, but we will deliver against that. Um, I think authentic is, as we have done that, hopefully, through all of our communication, um, it's been quite hard to be transparent, be honest, but we've been communicative um, and world-class is, we're staging a world-class global tournament. So um, we reached the sky and um, we'll continue to do so. Look, John, you guys were given, and tell me if I'm wrong, four minutes notice 
that Australia and New Zealand were going to pull out of the Rugby World Cup, uh, Rugby League World Cup on the, I think that was, what, it was the 22nd of July, wasn't it? So as we are now, we're in, you know, late August where we're recording this. Um, what was your reaction when you had those four minutes? <laughs> um, surprise, uh, anger, frustration, a whole lot of different emotions. I think the important thing going forward, Will, is the rhetoric, what's been documented on both sides of the world has to stop and there has to be unity. So what happened, maybe we can explain that, particularly by what's happening in Auckland and Sydney at this moment in time. Uh, maybe not when other people look at different sports teams traveling around the world, but the way it happened and the way it was played out publicly, I think did a disservice to international rugby league. And we must all, and include myself and everyone, uh, involved in the international game must be better. The rhetoric, cowards, convicts, contempt, bullying, um, none of that narrative needed to be played out in the public domain. I just think that's really interesting that a lot of those accusations and words were said from the other side when uh, as not being involved in, 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 the, in the campaign in the World Cup directly. I think it was probably a little bit of selfishness from the other side, even though we shouldn't be taking sides. But I, I noticed that the Olympics, the Rugby Union uh, Test Series and some of the cricket all all were involved in uh, Australian teams towards the back end of the year. And because those teams aren't the dominant force in those sports anymore, especially uh, um, the Olympics and Rugby Union, I don't think they were they were able to take such a commanding role in, in, in calling all the shots. But I think um, the, the NRL certainly has a, um, a complex and, and probably rates itself as, as 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 dominating the world game. And I think it's, it's probably that selfishness on 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 their point the part that's 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 had a big part in, in, in this how this played out. Yeah, look, I, I'm not going to make excuses or speak on behalf of others. I think we all need to understand rugby league only has two professional leagues, and the players are not centrally contracted. So when we compare it to cricket or rugby union, football is obviously a behemoth and completely different. It's not a like-for-like -like comparison. Um, as I say, what, what has ultimately happened, I think we will deliver a better tournament. Um, it is disappointing. There are some really angry people. And I, I understand that. I understand it. And it will be hard when we come to autumn, when we see the All Blacks and the Wallabies and the Women's New Zealand Rugby Union team. We've seen what happened in Tokyo. It's really hard to take a breath and think that could be us. But we've got an opportunity now to look forward and deliver something bigger and better um, in 2022. There are lots of lessons to be learned, Mark, and I think the sport internationally still has so much growth. Uh, and that's the thing that hurts me. I'm a passionate internationalist. I've worked on 2013. I saw what happened in 2017. And if you just look at the nations we have, Brazil opening the women's competition. Wow, that, that's incredible. And that can carry on to 25 and 29 and International Rugby League has so much more growth. So hugely passionate. Um, I think the anger, the vitriol, all the rest of it, all of that's gone. Uh, now it's about positivity, optimism and unity. Yeah, look, and I know, and I know you want to move forward um, and I don't want to come on here, John, and just mug people off. But, you know, just to, to quote what Simon Johnson said, um, of course, you know, chairman of the RFL, he called it selfish, he called it parochial, he said it was a cowardly decision. At that time, in the heat of the moment, uh, and we all know a World Cup is no World Cup without Australia and New Zealand, but was there any consideration to go ahead without those two? 
There was Will, and, and we went on the public record to say we'd spoken. Uh, I'd spoken to uh, the organisers of the Indigenous um, Aborigine team, uh, to the Maori uh, team from New Zealand, and they were they were real. They were genuine. They had reached out to the athletes, and and this is. I think the fundamental point, we have to put the players at the heart of our decision making and I don't think that happened in the decisions that were made by Australia and New Zealand. When we reached out to the players um, through the players union, uh, through the individual nations, we know that the players wanted to play. Was there apprehension? Did people 12,000 miles away look at the UK and perceive something probably different to reality? Absolutely. Could we have worked through that? I believe we could. But if the players were not allowed to get on the plane for whatever reason, that's not right. And that would have resulted in, you know, can, can you imagine, Mark, the ability to represent your country and someone like me, an administrator, says, you're not, you're not, you're not able to do that. We're going to stop you from doing that. That fundamentally wasn't right. Um, and I think we've just got to put players at the heart of the decision making, which um, we tried to do. We reached out to them, we consulted with them, we ultimately surveyed them. Um, and there was no surprise that, uh, whilst there was some apprehension, pretty much everyone wanted to get on a plane and come and play. I, I remember having a chat with um, a former teammate of mine who plays in Australia, and we both said the same thing, that you, you'd, you'd cut off a limb. You wouldn't play very well at rugby, but you cut off a limb to, to play in a, in a World Cup. You'd, you'd, you'd go to extremes because I never got the chance to play in one, um, but it would have been a dream come true. And I think you're willing to make sacrifices as an athlete. And I think it would have been the players, not the clubs, that, that would have made the sacrifices. And that's that's why it's quite sad to see. But it's also uplifting to, to know that it's going to be coming around next year. Um, I'm interested to know in what what lengths were um, you guys prepared to go to, to to make it happen with the quarantine back in back in Australia uh, and all the, the the extent you would you you were willing to go to to, to make it happen from a, from a players and a, and a team's point of view. Yeah, the, the most extraordinary measures. We, we were prepared before the decisions of Australia to do whatever it took, and then subsequently after the decisions with, by Australia and New Zealand, should we have been able to carry on to do whatever it uh, had taken. And we talk a lot about you know the men's athletes, the NRL players, the players in Super League. We shouldn't forget that the women's players are all part-time. So when we look at coming over to the UK, whether you're from Papua New Guinea, from the Cook Islands, from Australia, and subsequently then having to spend another two weeks away from your family after you've played in the tournament to quarantine, that's a really big deal. That is an incredible commitment that the uh, women's players were prepared to make. And the same with the wheelchair athletes. Um, wheelchair rugby league, by the way, and I'd love to talk about that a, a little bit more, Will, because I think it is just a very special part of the game that we have. But again, the, the athletes are all part-time, you know, all working. They were prepared to make that um, commitment. And if we go back to player power, in 2017, the decisions by um, Andrew Fafita and Jason Tamalolu in representing Tonga, I think was a real game changer in terms of player power. And we, we, we were beginning to see a lot of that. We were beginning to see the players that were prepared to stick the hand up for Samoa, for Tonga, for the Pacific nations. And that's so exciting. It's exciting enough to wait another 12 months to make sure we get the best athletes in the world here playing. Mm. But Mark, I mean, your view on this then, if it is just down... Let's you know. Let's speak. The crux of the matter being that the NRL season was supposed to start on a certain date, and there wouldn't have been enough time with players having to quarantine after the tournament if they're going to go deep into the tournament as well, for them to you know fulfil their contracts and be up and running for the first two match weeks of that. I mean, you know, would would Super League would England have reacted in the same way had it been on the other the other foot? 
I don't think so. I think it's it was incredibly short-sighted by the NRL and, and the clubs over there. And I want to touch on something I mentioned earlier. I think selfish is, is the word because had, at that point, the NRL didn't, and the clubs and the administrators over there didn't know that it was going to be postponed until next year. So for all they knew, it might have been cancelled. How bad would that have been for the women's, women's game, the wheelchair game, and the, the developing nations that are, that are really hitting the, stra- the straps in terms of rugby league? It, took, it could have been a massive back step for those guys. And I think, um, yeah, short-sighted and selfish is, is are the two words that, that I think of because um, it's, those nations and, and the women's in the wheelchair get, chair game have grown so much and so many players and people are invested in it. It would have been such a shame had that not happened. But thankfully... Um, it'll be next year now, but it, it, it could have been a, a massive disaster for me. Yeah. So, look, I mean, look, John, moving forward, let's, and let's be positive now and, and look ahead because obviously the implications of the delay, you're still looking for a date. Um, you obviously don't want it to coincide in 2022 with the Football World Cup in, in Qatar for, for obvious reasons. So how, firstly, how willing are the people that you're speaking to, I don't know, on a, a regular basis, on a weekly basis, on an hourly basis, for you know, down under, are they to, to get this on the road? Yeah, it's all, all about relationships, isn't it? And part of that is probably rebuilding some relationships and keeping those lines of communication open. We're, we're really respectful of what, what's happening in the NRL at the moment. They've had to move all the players to Queensland. Uh, they're about to embark uh, not far off the playoffs. Uh, they've got enormous challenges. They're dealing. Australia is dealing with the pandemic in a rad- radically different way, and we've seen just this week that Auckland now is being closed down. So perhaps some of what we experienced months ago, Australia and New Zealand are only starting to um, experience. But we're really confident that we will get to the right place. Um, we've got an enormous piece of work, so we've got to renegotiate all of our venues. Um, we've got 18 host towns and cities. We've got 32 different nations and so on and so forth. So it's created an enormous piece of work. And you're absolutely right about the dates being really important, Will. So we have to avoid the FIFA World Cup. It, it, it isn't even an option. And when we look at the sports calendar next year, there's something really interesting and you can take it two ways. I see that nothing but opportunity. We start off with the Women's Football European Championships, um, which I think will be tremendous and will show female athletes once again on uh, centre stage. We then follow that up immediately with the Commonwealth Games. And we start then our tournament, during which the World Gymnastics Championships happens in Liverpool. So you've got four huge events in five months, all in England. And we will play a really special part um, in that. So I, I sort of, you know, many people say, oh, well, does, is that not a threat from tickets and other things and sponsors? I don't think it is, because actually we're really in a really, really strong place. I think that's a massive celebration of sport. Um, and we're, we're already talking to those organisations about linking up and yeah celebrating sport beyond rugby league there's so much that you said there john that it, that i want to pick up on um i mean firstly the venues my ears pricked up mark when john was talking about the venues because you know you said 18 venues that is not just a case of right guys hold fire and you know we'll just let you know when we want to do it because we all know how how busy these clubs you know you're talking about st james's park you're talking about old trafford you're talking about some some you know world-renowned venues that probably rod stewart's got booked out at some stage you know to to play a concert so Money-wise, the impact of that. I mean, I know you got twenty-five million quid um, to get this on the road. Uh, the, the monetary impact and implications of this and rebooking venues just seems to me. I mean, that's why someone like you is doing it. But that that is a, is a maze, isn't it? 
it was really complicated in the first place. It took us 12 months to put the schedule together. So we've got, actually got 21 venues, 18 different host towns and cities. Uh, we've got 61 games across a five week period. So it was, it was pretty complicated to begin with. Then you've got to overlay what is a really complicated football season. So of course the Premier League starts, Champions League, um, Championship, FA Cup, and then it, then it stops because everyone goes to Qatar and plays in the FIFA World Cup. So. All of that, it's, um, I like problem solving and it's certainly a complex problem and I think we'll end up in a really good place. Our venues, our towns and cities have been um, just incredibly supportive and appreciative of some of the things that we've been through. So there'll be a little bit of disturbance, that's, um, that's natural um, and unavoidable, but in the main we'll end up pretty much in the same place. And we know, we've seen through our ballots that people want to come to Old Trafford, we've seen the Emirates, Arsenal, I'm really excited to go and um, see that game as one of our top sellers and as we all look forward to Magic and Newcastle, we know people love watching rugby league in Newcastle, so we start off in a strong position. And what other advantages can we look forward to with, with the delay? I, I was going to say more certainty, Mark, I'm, I'm not sure there's a thing is there more certainty, the bonkers world that we live in. We've got more uh, time, we have more ability to deliver our social impact programme. We've performed really well commercially. I think we can onboard some more commercial partners. Uh, we've got a bit more time with international broadcast to make sure our reach is further. We want everyone in the world to have the ability to watch this tournament. Um, yeah, in just 12 months to um, excite, enthuse and make sure we have a different audience to come and watch the tournament. I would love this to be played out to the people like me who will still pay my money and go to the Lee Sports Village every two weeks to watch my team. But it, it, we can't survive off that. We have to get a new audience. And I think what we'd seen from our ticket sales so far, we were really starting to break through. So all of those opportunities and probably many more, not least the ability to work with those other sports and hopefully do some cross promotion. John, how close are you to then being able to announce a date? Because I imagine that is going to be an exciting moment for you when you can press that red button and release the rocket and go, look, we've put that all behind us, but we've got another World Cup around the corner? Yeah, um, really soon, um, Will, so two parts. One is just fixing the dates, the tournament uh, dates, and then secondly, um, probably a couple of months afterwards, will come the full schedule. Obviously, that will take a little bit more time to work through, but yeah, we're, we're, we're right, on the, um, right on the precipice of being able to, uh, being able to do that. Mm. And, and so there's obviously no doubt, really, from you that it's, it's not going to happen. In, in 2022 it, it, it's it's a cert that it, I mean it has to happen next year doesn't it or not at it, it all has to happen. it has to happen next year there aren't any other alternative um, options and it's just everyone takes a deep breath and this isn't just about the, the circumstances that we face um, we are surrounded by uncertainty um, and if we look at you know the Olympic Games being cancelled, being postponed. Sorry, being moved back a year. That that was incredible. In 2020, they've managed to get 2021 on with no uh, crowds. Obviously, the Paralympics and so on and so forth. So there is no other option. Uh, will the tournament will happen next year? Um, look, uh, John, with with money, no one likes to talk about money as well. But uh, you know, just to, to to pick a line out of it, and we mentioned that 25 million pound figure that you worked so hard to get from the government. Do you feel that that is going to have to be added to quite significantly by by um, by the UK government? There, there is a bill um, to postponement. Um, what we have been able to do is because of our commercial performance, we're in actually a really good position to be able to 
fund as much of that for as long as possible as we can. Um, we intend to go back on sale uh, before Christmas. Um, I can't speak highly enough of government, but we are incredibly conscious of the demands on the public purse. So um, yeah, we, we, we will end up, I think, in a decent place. We're just going to have to work really, really hard. And it goes back to my point, um, Will, about unity. You know, we want the sport, the sports scarce resources, um, put that to one side, the sport's ability to be as one. And if we can get that, this will be a celebration of humanity, a celebration of rugby league, a celebration of sport next autumn. You t- you, John, you touch on the commercial partners there. Um, I remember looking on the, the World Cup website a few weeks ago and the firms like uh, Gatorade and Kazoo, which are, they sponsor Tottenham Hotspur, one of the big Premier League clubs. How easy was it to get those commercial partners? Because I think predominantly in the past, there have been northern companies that maybe um, are in line with the, the, the sports heritage. We're looking at somebody like Gatorade, which is a, a global brand. How easy was it to get them on board and, and what were the main um, triggers for, for the, their kind of involvement? I think it probably goes back to your previous question, Mark, about our values, about being bold and brave um, and also being a little patient. We've had the beauty of time to go at this. So it was about being storytellers and aspirationally wanting new, different brands because we hope as part of our legacy that's Kazoo and Pepsi Max and some of the people that we've brought in ultimately stay with the sport. That would be a brilliant result um, for the sport. Um, So it's about being storytellers. It was about probably a slightly different approach. We've got a global offering. We've got incredible reach. We've got every one of our 61 games live across the BBC, which commercially has um, a value. Um, And we signed Deloitte. We signed a law firm, Evershed Sutherland, very early um, on in our journey. And we've sort of built on that as we've gone forward. We've blessed with um, National Lottery um, support. We've put more investment into our social impact programme. And I'm really confident. Um, I think we're on the verge of um, another announcement very soon, which will be a big statement in postponements that we can carry on signing partners. And as I say, I would love nothing more than when I walk away from this at the end, the sport has some new commercial partners, some new money because they've had such a great experience with us in the Rugby League World Cup. I mean, I guess you must be excited, John, to really sort of tap into the symmetry, as you mentioned, of, of Tokyo and of the Olympics there, because there was all these things which we've just been talking about leading up to that and obviously much closer to COVID and more related to COVID, I guess, than, than the Rugby League World Cup. But look at all the good feeling afterwards and look how, albeit with no fans, look what they put on. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And I'm sure we'll see much more of that with the Paralympics over the next um, few days. Um, but sport brings people together. Sport has a, such a special part in people's lives. It is unifying. Events are really special, I think. Events are just that, that tempo that doesn't exist all the time. It's a point of difference from watching Wigan or St Helens or Manchester United um, or Liverpool. And we've got the ability with our sport um, to do that on a global stage. Um, so we're keen to learn as well. We, we, t- we went everywhere in the world in 2019 when we were able. We went to the Rugby Union World Cup in Japan. Um, we travelled extensively to learn and bring those ideas into um, what we're doing. We probably need to download now again from Tokyo delivering the Olympics in a COVID more secure environment and plan and prepare for whatever the environment might be in the future. Have you got any examples of the, of the key learnings from that 2019, those trips and those, um, you know, copying and, and kind of doing your homework on, on different sports and different events? <laughs> I think we, we, we were in um, 
Tokyo for the Rugby Union World Cup um, when the typhoon um, hit and talk about managing a crisis and being under pressure. I ne never actually realised how important that moment was until what we've been through over the last um, few weeks. Um, but I, I think one thing we learned from the Rugby World Cup in Tokyo uh, or in, across Japan, they were largely trying to sell to an uneducated audience. You know, Japan... Um, is just a really fascinating country and it was about it was about an event it was about civic pride and I think that translates directly to what we're trying to do with the Rugby League World Cup it's about galvanizing communities that might never ever stage a World Cup in any other sport St Helens Warrington Lee and using the world looking at that Tono city to uh, bring out civic pride Japan did it brilliantly uh, I, I think we've got an, uh, an ability to uh, match that as well I'm interested to see, John, in, in your head, because you would have had this grand vision of what the Rugby League World Cup 21 would have looked like. How different will that vision be, do you think, when it does go ahead in 2022? I don't, I don't think dramatically different, Will. It comes back to our purpose. Our purpose is about making a positive impact on people's lives and our social impact programme has done that and this will be a celebration of that. I'm looking forward to the diversity of athletes that we will bring. Jamaica, what an amazing story uh, Jamaica is. And Alex Simmons and Jason Robinson being involved, they've done such a brilliant job. I think Mark made the point earlier about how special it feels to put on a shirt and play for your uh, national team. Players have hardly had the opportunity to do that. You know, when, uh, how many games have we watched England men play since the last World Cup in 2017? How many games have Jamaica been able to play in preparation and Greece and Lebanon and Brazil so I think if people if, if the athletes are able to get a bit more game time and properly prepare we will see this amazing celebration we'll see the Pacific nations Fiji, Samoa, Tonga who knows one of those could actually lift a trophy one day and then across the rest of the competition we're going to see some new nations some new names um, and some new superstars we've got Norway the first ever Scandinavian team playing in the wheelchair world cup um, you don't often associate Norway and rugby league so all of that should be something that the sport can be proud of and for five weeks get behind it adopts a second team and um, yeah there's plenty to choose from I guess that's what's great Mark isn't it because we saw it at the Olympics as well but Actually, when you when you think of some of the personal stories, which is so much of a, a tournament and of, of an Olympic Games, for example, they, they will be more magnified because of what's happened, because, you know, the, the impact that it would have had on all the people that John's just been talking about. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think um, I remember an interview before the Challenge Cup final with um, Peter Matautia uh, for Castleford, who, who told of his story. Uh, and the struggles he had grow, growing up in his family, and where he, how much of a, and a remarkable journey it was for him to get to where he was today. And I think if you know the the organisers and the media can shine a light on some of those story, cause, stories, because I think especially the Pacific Nations, there's some really interesting guys there, and and, and the wheelchair game and the, and the women's game even more so because you know th those guys that don't have the luxuries that professional rugby, male rugby league players have, and. Uh, I know we spoke to James Simpson recently and his story is unbelievable and it, it really tap into to the personal touch on, on those players and um, the backstories I'm sure will be remarkable. I, I, think, I think the really exciting thing about Wheelchair Rugby, James is one of our ambassadors and um, I mean just such an incredible story but just an incredible human being. To be able to not just tell his story but for Wheelchair Rugby to be elevated, played on a clean court in a big venue in front of thousands of people it will take the game to the next level and that's rugby league james is playing rugby league 
and it's 80 minutes and you pass the ball backwards. It's nothing like what we will see in the Paralympics with the term rugby. It is a true derivative of the running game. Um, and that we should celebrate that. We should celebrate physical disability rugby league. We still you know, aspire to stage the first ever phys physical dis disability rugby league World Cup. And we saw recently, you know, the work that Adam Hills has done and the work of the clubs, the Super League clubs and the foundations, that we should all celebrate um, that. And we shouldn't forget, um, Will, that the, if you go right back to 1954, the Rugby League World Cup is the second oldest sporting World Cup um, there is. And it was born out of adversity. You know, like a lot of the sport of Rugby League, it was about resilience and overcoming adversity. And Paul Barrio, when he donated the trophy to the world, when four teams played with a cockerel on top of the trophy, fast forward to where we are, and it will be 50 years um, almost to the day, I think, towards the end of the tournament, when um, 1972 and Great Britain um, won and Clive Sullivan, etc. So all of those memories that we have, we will be able to translate into our tournament and we'll give people the ability to make new memories. And I'd like nothing more than some of those to be in and around James's story in the Wheelshow World Cup. I think it's really important that, you know, across the sporting landscape, um, if, if rugby league can be that inclusive progressive sport compared to others because not only is it the right thing to do to highlight the wheelchair game and the women's game and the, and the PDRL aspects of rugby league it's definitely the right thing to do but it's also really key in this day and age that we kind of we, we, we show a part of difference and you know we see football and all these other sports have their values but our our values of resilience and perseverance and, and, and that real honesty is, is really key and, and as John, John said there it's kind of it's in our DNA and it should be celebrated much more. Yeah, I mean, like, I 100% agree with you, particularly the wheelchair rugby. And I think it's it's so captivating, John, because um, even to people who know very little about rugby league, to be able to watch that, and it, it fits perfectly into to broadcasters, doesn't it? Because that that is a that is a sport which just captures the imagination. And you could imagine that just taking off worldwide from a broadcast point of view. It's the, it's the bit we're so excited about because if, if we put it, we've seen um, the Challenge Cup recently and some of the games in Sheffield and they've been brilliant. All of a sudden, just simply putting a clean surface down so there are no other lines, elevating sports presentation and from a broadcast perspective, particularly then when we start to think about data and all the things that people are innovating with, in, in an indoor environment, in, in a smaller space, we've got the ability to do that. And then you've got the athletes, you know, James, the skill level, the, the ability to be able to wheel your chair, pass a ball whilst being involved in a high impact collision is incredible. And then we've got the inclusivity aspect to it where men, women, disabled and non-disabled players can all play together. So no one will ever be turned away from playing wheelchair rugby league. And, and that's happening in Paralympic sports at the moment. So I think that, again, is a big USP for all of us to celebrate. I don't think there are any other sports where male, female, able-bodied, disabled athletes can all play on the same team at the same time. And you think you think about if you know if I had a son or a child and, and they had a disability, and as a family to be able to play a sport together, I don't think there's many others that you can do. And I think that's such a, a great message to to our country and our people and the world really that you can play this game in no matter what aspect it is. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there are, Mark. Um, I'm maybe proven um, wrong, but there's some just wonderful stories in the England team, also in the Australia team. I think there's father and son that have represented the national team together. I mean, wow, how special is that? So we've got the ability with our broadcast partner, with our global reach across the world, first of all, to get the pictures 
far and wide and distributed, but secondly, to start telling some of those stories. And we, we know from what you said before, Will, it's about emotion. You know, if you think back to some of the memories of watching the Olympics uh, and the, the athletes winning against some adversity, um, that was based in emotion. And I, I think we can definitely tell that story, um, not just with the wheelchair game, with Brazil um, in the women's game, uh, just so exciting. And obviously the predominance of Pacific nations in the men's game will give that narrative of, well, Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea, rugby league in Papua New Guinea is the national sport. Uh, and as part of our social impact programme, we've been out there, we've visited Papua New Guinea and other areas to ensure there is a connection between what we're doing as a tournament and what's happening um, back home. Um, obviously, the pandemic has put a bit of a uh, blocker on that for the time being, but th we've, we've tried to do everything we can. We've been to Nigeria, uh, and I think West Africa is a untapped area um, that could be the next force in International Rugby League. And wouldn't it be wonderful in 10, 15, 20 years time to come back and look at just us going to West Africa and taking the trophy and inspiring people, and ultimately Nigeria are a force to be reckoned with in the international game. Don't say that, John. You'll get John Wilkin buying a flat in Lagos because he, he was already desperate to tap into the whole uh, North American experience and that didn't go too well for him. So maybe that is the future for Wilkin. Uh, the sort of, you know, the Nigerian... Uh, the Nigerian... Yeah. I'll pack his bags Helens. if he wants. John needs to have a conversation with Martin Afaya. Ma Ma I know Martin's been uh, involved in uh, what's happening in uh, Nigeria Rugby League, but uh, yeah, gosh, glo global, ex <laughs> global expansion. Yeah. Look, John, from a personal point of view, um, and we mentioned at the top of the podcast everywhere that you'd worked before for people who didn't know, and you know, you've, you've covered pretty much all bases in all sports. Has this been the biggest test of your leadership skills in your career? Yes. Yes, undoubtedly. And I would say before what's happened over the last couple of weeks through the pandemic, as many leaders have experienced, trying to manage uncertainty, trying to plan for the future and manage uncertainty is is really hard. Um, we've navigated our way through up to a point and then we've had to deal essentially with a crisis. And again, I think we've done the best that we can. We've made a responsible decision um, and we can look forward. But yeah, it's definitely... It's definitely been a test, but at times I've thought, Mark, that rugby league is, can be pretty brutal on the field. I can assure you, it can be pretty brutal off the field. Um, so yeah, de de definitely a test, but definitely you know we are resilient, and I think the sport is resilient, and I think that's incredibly important. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess as a, as a CEO, as a chief executive, um, you don't just become a, a chief executive, and I'm, I'm I'm really interested about that, you know, that leadership side of things because. You're, you're very rarely allowed to show emotion. You can't show the cracks. You know, you, you, you always CEOs always have to move it forward. They have to, you know, expect the difficult questions and, and be able to bat them away and so on. But then also, John, you've got the responsibility of of re-motivating your workforce because not everyone who works for you is at CEO level and, and has the experience and the sort of, um, you know, the ability to be able to, to let this slide off you and to be able to move forward. So, you know, you have to motivate them again. Yeah, yeah. Look, at the end of the day, I'm just a human being who can show emotion. I think and be authentic, and that's what we've tried to do in um, some of our messaging. I, I've had the privilege of being involved in day one with a complete blank sheet of paper, um, setting the company up, um, helping to appoint the board, building a team. We started off with myself and a colleague. We went from two people to sixty-five 
people, still quite small for a major global sporting tournament, um, and everything in the middle. And that has just been an incredible privilege. Um, clearly what we need to do now is take a deep breath, um, reset, which we have done, um, and go again and go again with the optimism and positivity and just being proactive. Um, we are keen not just to roll over and do the same again. We're keen to learn from what's happened and to do our very, very best for the sport. Because what we also shouldn't forget, Will, is we're, we're, we're temporary. We don't, when the trophies are finally lifted and the fireworks go off, our job yeah. is done and we move on and we want to make sure uh, that the sport has taken some benefits and continue to do so going forward. I genuinely don't believe that the Rugby League World Cup will come back to England for a long time and certainly not with the commitment that government have made. So this is our golden opportunity and this is why it's so important and was worth uh, the fights that we've gone through and um, to get to the position we are now in. In terms of in terms of legacy, John, um, what do you want the legacy of, of the Rugby League World Cup to be? Because like you said there, it's, it probably won't come back for a while. So what are the key points that, that you want to see um, in the future for, for Rugby League after it takes place? I think it's multifaceted, um, Mark. I think my frustration is sometimes people, not just in Rugby League, but, but predominantly in sport, the word legacy and the word we've used the word social impact so we're actually making a difference as we've gone legacy is genuinely what we would leave behind and if we can increase the number of people that come and watch the game so new spectators have come and watched the game and are inspired to carry on watching the game fantastic if we can inspire people to switch on the tv more and watch the game great but i think underpinning that is people finding their level in the sport that they're comfortable with not everyone wants to play rugby league and certainly not to the level that um, you've played Mark people want to volunteer and we've got an accessible volunteering program we've invested into facilities so you will know from playing community um, rugby league way back that the facilities just aren't good enough they are just not good enough and if we want to encourage more people to play the game we've got to have better facilities we've got to have more volunteers we've got to have welcoming environments and we are making a difference in that area and then one of our other programs is about um, it's about resilience so it's about mental fitness so when we did our draw way back way back with prince harry um, at buckingham palace we launched our mental fitness program and the idea was to deliver resilience training to 8,000 young people who play the sport of rugby league. And that was before the pandemic. The pandemic's come along and we, I think, have all um, had challenges with our mental well-being. So to actually have that programme for young people who will carry on playing the game, I think that is a genuine, true legacy that we can leave behind. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's all of the above and a lot more. And rather than think through that, um, London 2012 went really hard on legacy and it was about participation and, and we, 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 we are not in that same place it's just about making a positive impact um, whatever that might be and people having if they've had a positive experience they're more likely to come back and enjoy the sport thereafter John one quote that caught my eye uh, that came out not long after the delay was announced was from you and it said that I think uh, it'll take some time for International Rugby League to recover from this and I hope that we can be a, a beacon of light. Just elaborate on that for us. Yeah, I, it's probably similar to what we discussed earlier about International Rugby League still has an enormous amount of growth. We haven't seen enough games. Now, we can put the pandemic to one side, but there isn't enough International Rugby League. That's obviously complicated by clubs and by the domestic season. We've got to uh, respect that. Um, but I think if we can stage something 
significant a celebration in 22. It allows the international game something to build off. Uh, it's been well documented that um, France are the favourites to stage the Rugby League World Cup in 2025, and that might be just magnificent in terms of then the growth um, of domestic rugby league in France and thereafter the Nines um, tournament, the World Cup of Nines that was held, and, and so much more. So if we can be that shining beacon, um, if we can do something positive for the game and people then can take it on from us, I, I want nothing more, uh, Will, than the 2025 tournament to be better than our tournament because that's the responsible thing. And then if 29 is better and 33 is better, let's look at the trajectory of the Rugby Union World Cup. When it was first played in 1987, it made, I think, a million pounds worth of profit. It's projected in France 23 to make half a billion pounds worth of profit. Um, wow. If Rugby League can get on that same trajectory, it's going to take some time, but it's going to take respons responsible decision-making, unity um, and positivity. It was a st stark bit of imagery there, John, when you said, and I guess it's bang on, like you, like you put it, but as soon as that trophy is lifted, the trophies across the various formats are, are lifted, then that's you, you're, you're done, your work's done, you know, all that, all that build-up and all that effort and everything that's gone into it. Um, and look, thank God we've got someone like you who is beavering away to get this back on, on track. Um, have you even had any time to consider what, what might be next for you in that sense? Because... You know, and I know this is going to take up absolutely every single ounce of your energy, but you know, you're a busy, ambitious man, and uh, I imagine you've got your, your sights set on something. I, I, I was having those thoughts, Will, about two months ago, and obviously that's gone in a slightly different um, yeah. direction. Yeah. Um, look, <laughs> after the tournament, um, I think for all the team to take a break and, and reflect and reflect of what we hopefully have achieved for the sport. Um, I, I just, I am. Rugby league through and through, um, never good enough to professionally play the game, but been involved at every level. And I just want to make sure that what we do leaves an indelible footprint um, on the game in a positive way. And um, who knows what where that might um, take us. Sport is competitive, you know, outside what happens on the field. If you look at sport, private equity is coming into um, sport, digital and broadcast is changing. There's more ethical decision making and rugby league just has to find its right place in that having a set international calendar having a world cup that will exist every four years that to be the beacon and to be the pinnacle of the sport and that to be played across different disciplines um i think we'll all be in a uh, a pretty decent place if we can bounce off 21's event in 2022 into the future Mark, he's very good, isn't he, sitting on the fence, isn't he? Yeah. He's very good, John, Absolutely. sitting on the fence. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get that fence out of him, we'll repaint it. But essentially, you know, he didn't rule out being Robert Elston's successor. You know, he's going to stay in yeah. rugby league. What you did, what I did pick up there, John, is it's definitely going to be rugby league. You're not going back to football, you're not going back to golf, which you hate, you're not going back to cycling. You're going to stay in the, in the sport that you love. I, I, I'm not, I, I, will, I, I will let other people make those um, decisions. Well, what I can hand on heart say is I will be every two weeks at the Lee Sports Village watching um, my team play in whatever competition they will be playing in um, in the future. That uh, that will never leave me. And, and actually, John Wilkin won't be there, will he? Because he is not welcome. I know he's not, he hasn't been welcome on this podcast <laughs> today, but he, he's not welcome at Lee. I mean, you know, we, we are trying to set up that charity boxing event, hopefully not around the same sort of time as the Rugby League World Cup. Um, but, you know, that is going to happen between Derek Beaumont and John Wilkin at some stage, I'm told. John. I I actually saw Derek Beaumont um, this week in Manchester in a leopard print jacket looking for John Wilkins, so that might be why he's not on the on the call today, actually. 
<laughs> There's a lot of beef, but I tell you what, we could we could use Mr. Dutton's experience to sort of get venues and things set up for that that fight because it is apparently going to be a three fight contract with Beaumont and, and Wilkin as well. With, uh, with Beaumont, your only favourite, delighted to help. <laughs> Good man. Well, look, John, we need to let you go because you've got so much to do, and as you said, a, a date is imminent, which is really exciting. Um, I hope it goes so well for you, mate, because you you know you've put your heart and soul into this, and I know it's not about you, and it's about so many other things that um, that go with it, so many other variables. But for you, I hope it, it works out well, and um, let's hope from a, a world sporting perspective, you put on the show that you're desperate to do. Oh, thank th- thanks very much. Um, thanks, Mark. Um, absolute pleasure to speak to you and uh, yeah it's always about the sport it's always about doing our very best and uh, I hope uh, this time next year we've got lots of excitement and lots of international rugby to look forward to Thank you very much John there you go that's uh, John Dutton Chief Executive of Rugby League World Cup 2021 which is going to be 2022 but still called 2021 a bit like the Olympics and uh, don't forget we'll have another episode for you every week go and give us a little follow on Twitter at Out of Your RL that scumbag Wilkin will be back with us next week we'll see you then